morning. The uh, scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Again, that's Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart now to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made, plant, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everyone. Good to be here. Lord God, would you come and still our hearts, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts here before you be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, in Christ's name we pray, amen. For over a decade, um, Warren Buffett has offered himself this power lunch in his support of the Glide Foundation. It's a nonprofit whose mission is to break the cycles of multi-generational dependency of poverty and self, low self-worth by providing this unconditional love in this area in San Francisco Bay Territory. In 2010 and 2011, this one man, he uh, paid for this lunch at a whopping price of $2.6 million twice to get uh, this power lunch with Warren Buffett. 2012, an anonymous buyer spent $3.5 million to get this lunch. Um, 2013, an anonymous buyer spent $1 million. 2014, and the trial of Singapore spent $2.1 million. 2015, another person, $2.3, 2016, $3.4, and most recent, 2017, uh, the bid, winning bid was uh, $2.68 million. Now, these people spent a lot of money to sit down to have lunch with Warren Buffett. And you can imagine the kind of questions that they're dying to ask. Obviously, these are people with incredible wealth. Yet, knowing that this one of the wealthiest men in the world, you know, I think um, Forbes um, said he has close to $89 billion net worth right now as a chairman and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, what do you think they might want to ask him? Here's a seasoned man, 
87 years old, um, has arrived by any of the world's standard, maybe asking about the secret of picking winning companies and stocks, maybe not, who knows. But if you had an opportunity to sit down and pick the brain of the wisest, wealthiest, most successful person who has experienced everything that you could even imagine, what would you ask? What would you want to know? My boys have often asked me this question, but usually in the MBA context. Um, but it's, it's the kind of question a 10-year-old would ask would be vastly different from someone well-seasoned who knows the value of wisdom, right? The three questions, I'm sure there are more than three questions, but the three basic questions that us as human beings we wrestle with, and depending on how you answer these three basic life questions, it will change your life and the trajectory. The first basic question, where do I come from? Second question, what is purpose for my life? And the third, what happens after I die? The book of Genesis, as we may be very familiar with, addresses the first question, the question of origin. Where do we come from? And it addresses the fact that we are made by God in His image, yet we've been marred by sin. And the book of Revelation addresses the question of our destiny, where we're going, that we're going to return to God at the end of our lives, either to eternal union with God in heaven or eternal separation from God in hell. And as you may have guessed, the book of Ecclesiastes addresses the, the question for meaning in our lives. I mean, we probably learned in elementary school, we just need food, shelter, air, clothing, and then we will be okay. Those are the basic necessities for life. Yet, as we probably have experienced with our own life and the angst here, those things, as basic and needed as they are, are not sufficient to make us really live, fully live. The book of Ecclesiastes is indeed an eternal book, and it's summarized in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It reads, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which the, he toils under the sun? Spoken by the preacher, teacher, son of David, who lived as king in Jerusalem. Here the word vanity, it doesn't have to do with being full of yourself, a vain conceit. No, it has to do with the fact that it's momentary, profitless, meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. By gain, he's talking about profit. What profit is there? There is no gain. And here's a phrase that I didn't know till I had to study a little bit. Under the sun, it means life without heaven. Life without God. So if you were to rephrase the teacher here saying, if this life is all that there is and there's nothing after, no God, no eternity, everything is meaningless. What profit or gain is there to work one's life if this life is all that there is? It is true. Um, if this life is all that there is, the sense of meaningless and helplessness or hopelessness, if it's functioning correctly, is supposed to point us to 
that desire for eternity. C.S. Lewis once said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Because nothing in this world can satisfy that and fill that need. Book of Ecclesiastes is most likely written by Solomon, who so fitly shows a description of all that the book describes of him. King of David, you know, when God asked, whatever wish you have, let me know, and I'll give it to you. Solomon told God in the dream, you know what, God? Give me wisdom. And God gave him wisdom and riches. This Solomon is, have, is known to have written over 3,000 Proverbs, the vast majority of the book of Proverbs. He wrote some 1,000 songs, three books of the Scripture, including Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and perhaps next to Jesus, the wisest person who has ever lived. He reigned for 40 years in Israel during peace, and leaders from all over the world came to visit him, from learn from him. He oversaw construction of God's temple, which took seven years, his own palace, which took 13 years. He started well, but he didn't finish so well. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And if you read this book, it, it reads pretty well as you coming to realize the steps and the progress that Solomon experienced in coming to this realization that he has lived as if God didn't exist to come to realize that, you know what, if you live that way, it really is all meaningless. In this short passage, those of us who are following the reading calendar, we read this uh, book of Ecclesiastes early this week. And I want to just talk about two elements in, in the way, and there are far more than two, but the way we search for meaning in pleasure and achievement. Us, many of us being, you know, growing up here, we also look for meaning and wisdom in our education. But today I'm going to just focus on our search for meaning, especially in pleasure, and our search for meaning in life through achievement. So here's this guy who, as a king, had complete authority. He had no lack of resources and unlimited access to whatever he desired. What would your life be like if you were in a similar situation where if you wanted it, you could have it, whatever it was? And that was Solomon. He had the best comedians available. No laughter was ever denied, and it wasn't even on demand. They just came, and he, they performed right in front of him, live. He had the best wine, the best alcohol, $10,000 cognac that, you know, the former dictator of North Korea was known to spend while he was starving his people. You know, the, the stuff that Solomon had was probably far better by any standard. He had the best customized home, taking 13 years to build with a private garden and customized pool. He had over 10,000 servants attending to whatever whim or desires he had. 10,000 servants. It's larger than most towns, small towns in this country. He had more herds of animals and more gold and silver in his reserve than anyone else. He was the wealthiest king in the land. He had the best musical band, had his personal concerts at a whim, 
instead of going to a large show, like whatever K-pop or classical music you enjoy, upon his call, they come and they perform just for him. It didn't get any better. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, to satisfy any sexual desires without any inhibition. No sexual desire was unsatisfied. He was so famous that people flew him out. No, they didn't. They came to him to learn from him. From all over the world, whatever his eyes desired, whatever his heart sought after, no pleasure was denied. But at the end, he recognized that, you know what? All of this is meaningless if this is all that there is. He tried to find meaning and pleasure apart from God and found it wasteful, meaningless, vanity. We could have the most just amazing home to live in, best clothes that you desire, bank accounts that's full, you don't have to worry about your retirement, you have the best social connections, you have access to the best restaurants, best food, best vacation, and these are good things, these are not bad by any means. However, if that's all that there is and we are looking for meaning in these things alone, then at the end, you will come empty. Sometimes we think, well, we just haven't tried enough. Let me try a little more before I come to that conclusion. So instead of admitting that we're on a wrong path, we just want to go a little further. The meaningless of pleasure really ought to point us to the eternity that God has put in our hearts. question is, how are we doing? A couple of years ago, I was having a conversation with just this random person who identified himself as a hedonist. It's like, pleasure is what I live for. It's rare that someone would actually say or identify himself as such, but um, he looked forward to the weekends. You know, sometimes we can start a little early, but it was life of alcohol, drugs, and sex, and that's what he looked forward to. And I asked him, so what happens when you get bored and those things don't do anything for you? What if you feel those things are meaningless? What do you do then? He didn't know how to respond to that question, especially of boredom and meaninglessness of those pleasures. He just walked away. He didn't even, he wasn't able to think about the possibility that these pleasures in life couldn't have meaning for him any longer. Long time ago, there was a movie that came out by the title of Radio Days. I'm not gonna ask if anyone knows the movie because maybe some seasoned folks here, you might, but. I'm not even going to ask. But anyway, there's a boy who goes to school one day, and uh, he hears something really disturbing. And he comes home and begins to get depressed and even a little crazy. His mom is really worried and takes him to a counselor. And the counselor begins to hear about the boy who tells him, you know what, I began learning at school that this universe is expanding, that one day it's going to burn up, and everything's going to be just gone, and there's no use to doing anything in life. It's like, that's pretty intense. And the counselor, instead of telling what is 
deeply true and that there is reason to live. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as God and eternity. She couldn't, so she began to just say, you know what, boy, just lighten up and enjoy life. Just go eat some ice cream. Go play some game. Play ball. And maybe if he had been a little older, the, the counselor would have probably told him to just go out, date someone, climb a mountain, enjoy the view, you know, watch a show, smell the roses, etc., etc., etc. Ignoring the true need as human beings to have meaning and purpose in life. How long can we distract ourselves? Because at the end, if there really is no life after death, if there really is no purpose, how we live this life now really has no consequence. You know, this is season of Lent. Many of us are fasting from different things. By the way, we fast from good things. If we're thinking we're fasting from sin, that's bad. We should be not doing that anyway. So when we fast, first of all, we're fasting from good things. These are gifts of God, from God, that we choose to say, these are good things, but we're going to pursue the best thing, which is Christ himself, right? As we are fasting, we come to recognize that we are quite enslaved by these gifts that God has given us to enjoy. And it's a sober reminder. Many of us here are Christians, and maybe you think, well, Pastor Paul, I'm not a non-Christian who doesn't believe that God exists. I, I believe God exists. So I'm, I'm enjoying these gifts. However, perhaps the reality of our human condition, especially living in 2018, is that the gifts of God, many of them, they're great to begin with, but they have come to enslave us. Placing the gifts in the right place so that they serve us instead of us serving the gifts of God. There's a book that was written a while ago by uh, title of Cosmos, Theos, and Bios. And these two uh, people, one's an uh, emeritus professor from Yale by the name of Henry Maganau, taught physics and natural philosophy. And this journalist by the name of Roy Voges, they asked 60 prominent scientists, 24 who had won Nobel Prize, these questions. What do you think is the relationship between religion and science? What do you think of the view on the origin of the universe, both scientific or metaphysical? What, do you, what are your views on the origin of life? Again, metaphysical or scientific. What are your views of the origin of human beings or homo sapiens? Um, how should science approach the origin questions, especially the origin of the universe or origin of life? And lastly, what are your thoughts on the concept of God and the existence of God? These are super intelligent people. But what, and this is not ever meant to be a quantitative research, it was more of a qualitative, but the vast majority of responses were theistic, meaning these smartest people in the world have shown and believe that they believe in this existence of supernatural being or God. They might not be Christian, but they are theistic. And if not theistic, they were at least deistic, meaning they believed in a non-personal God or superhuman um, being. Thinking smart people were not really atheistic, but quite, they really did have um, belief and some sort of meaning in life.
So if one arena that people long to find meaning is through pleasure, another arena is through achievement. There's another old comic strip by the name of Mutt and Jeff. It started over 100 years ago. But in this comic strip, uh, Jeff comes to see Mutt, his friend, and Mutt is building this little pile of uh, stones, middle of a road, piling up. And he asks uh, Mutt, Mutt, what are you doing? And Mutt responds by saying, well, I'm building this pile in the middle of the road because I want to place a lamp on top. And then Jeff asks, why do you want to put a lamp on top? Well, so that cars can see the pile of stone and not run into it. It's like pretty ridiculous. Just don't put the pile. But, you know, mud is finding simply meaning from the part and the meaning of the other part without looking at the whole. It is meaningless. Just don't put it in the first place. Yet, if we as human beings try to find meaning through our achievement alone, then it is also vanity, meaningless. Human beings were never meant to find ultimate meaning in life through our work or achievement. Sure, God created us in his image, and before sin entered, God gave us work. However, our identity was foundationally to be ascribed through who God is and that God made us in his image, not by what we achieve. And work, as great as it is, especially as sin entered, now is marred by frustration and never full satisfaction. It was never meant to be ultimate. I shared, I guess it's over a year ago when I started serving here during my first message, my journey a little bit. And when I first began contemplating from stepping down from my former church where I served close to 15 years, as a Christian, as a pastor, I came to realize that though I knew here, as I began seeing these things manifesting, my anxiety, my depression, my fear, it was revealing to me quite clearly that I was seeing my identity more as a pastor for what I did than what I'd been preaching that I was a beloved son of God because of what Christ has done. And I wrestled with that, and I had to get help because I couldn't heal myself. And maybe you feel in a similar way. You are a Christian. You trust in Jesus. But you still find yourself relying, turning to your achievement, wanting to achieve. Is it bad to want to be achieving great things no but isn't it funny how slippery of a slope that is where we want to pursue for God's glory you know I probably read more books on leadership about you know pursuing your passion and ability aligning all that and you will feel experience that fullness of life yet how vacuous that is and empty because it doesn't really exist even as a Christian, in the work we pursue, because there's a lot of frustration. As sin entered, a lot of frustration entered this world. And I wrestle a lot with that. And to be honest, I still wrestle with that. Trusting on the finished work of the cross, yes. 
yet wanting to be excellent, but what's driving my desire to achieve is a question that humbles me a lot. Why do I practice preaching like 8 to 12 times? Is it because I want my message to be clearly understood by you guys? I'll be honest, yes to a certain degree, but you know what drives me more? It's my fear that I might just mess up or forget or just bomb. So where is my sense of who I am? Is it really grounded in me trusting who Jesus is, what he has finished on the cross? Or is it still conditioned upon me just doing a good job? It doesn't mean that I don't want to do a good job. But what is driving me? And to be honest, more often than not, it is my fear. It's my insecurity. It's my this need because sin entering I'd rather trust in what I have achieved than what Christ has achieved on the cross. I still wrestle. I've been wrestling for a long time, but I still wrestle. And I'm not sure if I'm going to stop wrestling. You know, King Solomon, I would die for his kind of CV. He has these grand projects that he finished that he could put after his name, monumental projects of building the temple of God. Boom. Something that even his dad couldn't do, was not permitted to do. He built this magnificent palace, spending 13 years. He has written these works 3,000 proverbs and 10,000 songs. This is a Renaissance man. He is just someone that you would admire to be and want to be. He led as a king, keeping peace for 40 years. He collected more tribute than probably other kings in history of the past, in the history of Israel. It was amazing. This guy has achieved more than we could probably ever dream. I can't even dream that big. And yet, he says, you know what, after all that work and success, it was meaningless. Because days were full of sorrow. He couldn't sleep at night. There was frustration. I have pastor friends, who, because I've been there, and they know I've been there, who reach out to me and say, Paul, pray for me because I can't sleep. I've been experiencing insomnia for a long time. I just have so much on my shoulder. I don't know how to. Pray for me, brother. And I do, because I've been there. When you can't sleep, because you feel like everything is on you. And maybe you feel that way about your future. I know I'm referencing a lot of old things, but another old movie that I enjoy, I have still a DVD. I don't have too many DVDs, but Chariots of Fire came out in 81. I know some of you guys weren't even born then. That's okay. There's a... Uh, Olympic gold medalist, this is Olympic 1924 Olympics, who won gold for 100-meter dash, and his name is Harold Abrams. By the way, if you want to borrow the DVD, let me know. This is what he says in the movie. I'm sure this is probably slightly, you know, um, changed, but contentment? I'm 24, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes, 
and look down that corridor, four feet wide, and only 10 seconds, 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Question is though, will I? Am I that different as a Christian? When I live, when I look at the way actually I live, when I examine the way I feel anxiety, stress, not when we're here together on Sunday, when I look at my week, when I think about the way I prepared this message and just wrestled and squirmed and like prayed to God, like what was it that I was really after? When I look at the way I am venturing out as an entrepreneur for the first time ever and think about the way I am wrestling, on good days, maybe I want to really be a blessing to the church and help people position themselves to grow as God's steward so that at the end we all get to hear, good job, faithful servant, yes. But you know what? Just as I wrestle in preparing the sermon well, what's driving me, when I think about what motivates my day in and day out activity, is oftentimes, guess what? I don't want to fail. It's not grounded in my security of trusting what Christ has done, but it's like, man, I want to succeed. I'm deathly afraid of failing. I don't want to just bomb this thing. And I want people to look at me and think, wow, he knows what he's doing. I wish I didn't have to say that. But I'll be just lying to you and lying to myself. What are you striving after? God wants us to achieve, but if we think our achievement is going to bring us to that place of resting and peace because we have achieved certain things, great things, you and I are fooling ourselves. There's a deep desire when we think about achievement. There are two components. We long for satisfaction here. Instead of me pursuing satisfaction in Christ, what he has done, I want to feel satisfied by what I achieve. That's what happens when sin entered. Instead of being satisfied in what God has done, who God is, and whose we are, sin has so marred you and me that, you know what, we rather seek that satisfaction, seek that peace through what we achieve. there's this danger of pursuing godly things for myself instead of God, for God. And forever we will continue to feel frustration in the work we do. We will experience pain. We will be evaluated. We will be measured. And we will not meet up. That's meet to a certain standard. Just, that's just the reality of human experience. At best, that satisfaction will be momentary. So if you and I seek that kind of internal satisfaction in our work, ultimately, we will be disappointed. So not only do we seek, because of sin, seek that satisfaction internally from what we have achieved, we also want to be recognized from those around. Instead of being, God being sufficient and God saying, I'm pleased with you because I look at you and I see the finished work of the cross through my son, we rather hear from other people around. My college buddies our friends and family, 
Yes, even our church members, we want to see that recognition, saying, hey, he knows what he's doing. Hey, she is doing a great job. We want people to love us, value us, respect us. We want that approval and recognition. And to be honest, there are many times when I think, not I think, I know, I want to hear that approval from people more than from God. And I still wrestle with that. And maybe you too. But I think that's what it means to know the gospel and to look to Christ. We don't have to be so afraid and pretend that we have it all together. I think when we draw closer to Jesus, as we, draw, as we trust him more and more, we don't have to pretend that we have it all together. We can be honest with God and each other and say, I still wrestle with this, O oh Lord. Brother and sister, I still wrestle with this. Join me and pray for me. Journey with me so that I do not allow these things to control me and affect me in a way that enslave me. I'd rather have these things be freed from me. Pop legend Madonna said a long time ago, you guys know who Madonna is? Anyway, she said, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of mediocre. Probably mediocrity. That's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. When we meet someone for the first time, you know, I actually wrestle with this. How do I introduce myself? It's like, what do I say? And how radical it would be for me to introduce, my name is Paul, and I'm God's beloved son. Maybe at some point, I'm hoping to arrive there and introduce myself as such. They'll probably look at me funny. But why should it matter? I guess context matters, but again, who do I think, who do you think you are? Or whose you are? That's why Sabbath taking is so radical. The fourth commandment, right? The first of the positive commandment. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. It's antithetical to everything that we are living under. This temptation and pressure to achieve, to do. 
because we live, and this is not just 21st century, this is thousands and thousands of years ago. People have always been measured by what they do. You are what you achieve. So people did not take real Sabbath from work. And when God gave his people this command, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy, it is radical, countercultural, because it's saying, we trust you, God. Our identity is in you, and on this day, we will not work. We will seek you, worship you, and we will trust in you, not in what we achieve. But that is hard. But then God never said following him was supposed to be easy. Chris Everett won 18 Grand Slam single tournament in tennis. 18. As she was getting prepared for her retirement, she was scared to death. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. And here it goes. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like, some, it was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. The more we try to make life meaning through work, the more we want to have success to define me, the more it's going to feel like it's going to go through your fingers you're going to just lose. You can't grab it. It's like water. You can't grab it. It's going to just slip through. Satisfaction here, it is a gift from God. Recognition from people and the way we really want will never really be delivered. Only God can look at you. Only God can look at me the way we really deeply need and want. Only he can love us and value us in a way that our soul so soul, soul desperately desire. No one, nothing can really save us. Only God is big enough. Scripture teaches us that we are created in the image of God. Sin entered. Work has been marred. Creation has been disturbed. We are to work, but that lack of full satisfaction is supposed to point us, drive us to God in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, we are to do work as part of God's family. Just as any family you're a member of, you do your chores, you contribute. But at the end, the ultimate thing is to spend time, both quality and quantity, with your Father, your Heavenly Father. That's what it's about. It's not what you do that defines, but it's the fact that you belong to the family. And we are adopted by what Christ has done. You know, this book of Ecclesiastes is publicly read. It was publicly read during the Feast of the Tabernacle. It's typically coinciding with the harvest time, with this bounty, blessing, and... Um, People are remembering what God did in this miraculous provision during the 40 years of wilderness. It's interesting how during this height of festivity, people are remembering, perhaps by reciting and reading this, one of the most sober and somewhat negative scripture in the Bible. Because we are called to remember the difference between the gifts of God, the blessings of God, versus the God who gives those blessings. 
In Ecclesiastes 3, it reads, God has set eternity in the hearts of men that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. And when you come to the end of the book, we're reminded, so what? So what? You and I are to fear God and to obey his commandments. That's what we're, how we're supposed to respond when we come to the New Testament, Jesus says the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. And he's speaking of himself. Question is, do you, do we dare to listen to someone greater than Solomon, greater than Warren Buffett, who's come and shown us the way? Are you trying to live this life in search of life's meaning and pleasure, achievement, apart from God? Or maybe as Christians, many of us here, the pleasures that God gives us as gifts, have they enslaved us? And the achievements that are supposed to have a right place as Christ followers are you wrestling? Because if you're not wrestling, then I think God wants to prod us to begin to wrestle, begin to admit. Because true transformation can't happen if we're not even aware of where we are. As we examine our hearts, because sin isn't simply doing bad things. Sins and commissions are what we teach the little kids here. When you lie, when you steal. But if you notice the kind of catechism questions we are reciting, it's far more challenging because it's not simply telling us to not do. As we recited today, as Ho Young led us, it tells us about the positive part because that is the heart of what God expects from us, to do the right thing, to do the good. Not just not do evil, but to do good is what God calls us to do. And even when you go deeper, daring to examine, when we do good, are we doing it really for God and others? Or am I doing it for myself? As we continue during this season of Lent, I want to just implore you, as you are fasting from whatever gifts that God has given you, as you feel the chains of those things being broken, so that those gifts of God have, they return to a rightful place and you can enjoy it, instead of allowing them to master you, I also pray that we will begin to or continue to wrestle with the accomplishments and achievements that we long to effect in our lives as we humble ourselves and put them at the foot of the cross. Would you join me as we pray?